Today, uh, in one of the groups, a question came up, which I feel is a very important question, and it comes up at some point in the beginning of every retreat, especially if you haven't done a lot of this form of meditation practice before. And the question is very basic. Why do we want to be aware again? (laughs) And I think it's a very important question. Because not for everyone, but often after two days of being aware, um, what we're aware of seems to lack sometimes in depth and profundity and great insight. It veers towards the mundane or the uncomfortable. And I find myself often in retreat. Why? Why is feeling the breath? going to liberate my heart. How does that work? (laughs) So, I want to talk a little bit about that, hopefully. Um, If you reflect for a moment on why you came here, just let yourself feel again what it was and is that brought you to such an endeavor as a 10-day silent retreat. whatever words you might put on it, and we would all probably have different ones, my guess, of course I can't know, is that in some form, each of us would be looking in our own way for whether we would call it happiness, or peace, or an open heart, or to live with more love and compassion, more connectedness, more joy whatever way we would talk about it. And instead, we might find ourselves confronted with restlessness, boredom, out-of-control thinking, an occasional moment of breath, dissatisfaction, doubt, whatever might come up. And our tendency is easy at that time to think, well, this certainly isn't the happiness or peace I came for, it seems to be going in the other direction. So how do they come together? You know, I'm sure some of you have heard this often. It's one of of the things that it so supposedly motivated the Buddha to teach after he was awakened, in that looking through the world, he could see that every human being, all of us are one in our heartfelt desire to be happy, whatever that means for us. That's part of what connects us as human beings. And the sadness, what moved the Buddha to compassion, was in seeing that in our very sincere efforts to be happy, no matter how twisted they might come out, in our sincere efforts to be happy, because we don't really understand true happiness, We do the very things that keep us spinning in dissatisfaction, in anguish, in unhappiness. Sort of like a hamster spinning on a wheel. And the faster we go trying to be happy, the more oppressed and the more unsatisfied we feel. And until we stop for a moment and take a look, we don't 
see, we can't understand what our confusion is, how we're misinterpreting our experience, misinterpreting the nature of happiness. Einstein said once that everything in the world is change. Everything changes except one thing, the way we think. We need to find a new way to think. So that's what we're here for, in some ways, to begin to explore how the ways we think about ourselves and the world might not be accurate, and to begin to find how to experience ourselves moment to moment in a way that is integrated with truth, in a way that allows us to rest at ease in the nature of our true hearts. So put very, this is very simply put, really breaking it down to bare bones, but one of the main ways that we tend to misinterpret or misconstrue happiness, misconstrue our experience, is that we tend to think, and we don't often realize this is what we're thinking, that happiness is equivalent to pleasant experience. If I have a pleasant or enjoyable sensation or thought or emotion or smell or whatever, then that's happiness. Which is, it is. It's a, it's a moment of pleasure. There's no question about that. But how long does it last? It's a moment of pleasure, but it's not the happiness of peace. It's not the sure heart's relief that the Buddha was talking about. So, without realizing it, we can end up spending our lives looking for pleasant experience. When pleasant experience comes, we do everything we can to make it stay. We can try and arrange and rearrange our life to get more pleasant experience. And when painful, difficult, unpleasant comes, it means we did something wrong. We blew it somehow because happiness is more and more and more pleasure. And so in trying to create a life like this, often without realizing we're doing it, this chasing after pleasure and running from what's unpleasant is what has us running on that wheel like a hamster. And even with our best intentions, we're thinking, well, I'm a good person. How come things aren't working out? Because our, our understanding of what's going to make us truly happy is skewed. We can find ourselves in really unhappy circumstances and not know how we got there. An example, this really I felt so sad to me. I read this interview a few weeks ago with Marlon Brando. Actually, it was read to me because it was in a German magazine. And he said, I never was a good father or a good husband. I was always busy with my own life. Now I am a guilty old man who feels ashamed of his life. Besides food, there is nothing else in the world for me. That's the only thing in my life. I know this eating will kill me, but I just can't stop. That to me is so sad. And not like, oh, he's some kind of weirdo. I can see in myself how easily I can get lost in following whatever he was following in his early life to give him pleasure. It's not making him happy now. And what's left? 
pleasant experience of eating. We're a society that has some extremely addictive tendencies. And it's played on, of course, by the media and advertising very strongly. And so in some ways, I think, when I've been um, overseas or in Asia, the same tendencies of mind are everywhere. I'm not saying only Americans. Remember, the Buddha was an Indian man who lived 2,500 years ago. It was the same story. But it definitely seems to me, in my experience, exaggerated. When I come back to the stage, just want, 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 want. And then we suffer so much. So in our life, whatever it is we're chasing after to give us more extended, pleasant feeling, whether it's more money, more fame, a better job, a better house, better friendships. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things per se. It's that feeling that if I have this pleasant thing, I can keep it and then I'll be happy. That leads us to fear and deny any unpleasant aspect of experience, which of course is going to happen. And we so easily bring that into the retreat here. I'm thinking, I mean, I don't want to impute, but just look at your experience through the day. What do you find yourself looking for that would be a good retreat? You probably don't think, it doesn't matter whether I have a lot of back pain or I'm really in bliss. I'm happy with whatever comes up. (laughs) When you have a somewhat quiet sitting and the next one your mind's all over the place, It's rare, and I don't mean just if you're new to this either. It's rare to sit there and go, fine, peacefulness, distractedness. It's all one in the Dharma. (laughs) (laughs) And we laugh. It's almost like not a possibility. But that is the way of peace. That's the way of true freedom. If we come to the retreat looking to create some other reality than the one that's here right now in this moment, then we're jumping on that hamster wheel and running as fast as we can. The secret is that we can just step off that wheel at any moment. Because the secret of freedom and the secret of our practices, it really doesn't matter what's happening in your experience. It really doesn't. We use tools and we use technique, and I'll talk more about that. But the end result isn't to become a perfect breather or a perfect sitter or the best walker or to be able to sit down and never have a thought. Those are all experiences that come and go, even if you had a whole sitting without a thought. So what? I bet when you stand up, there'll be a thought. (laughs) Sooner or later, there'll be a thought. So what? That's not the point. What we miss by getting so involved in our reaction to experience, wanting the pleasant, fearing the unpleasant, what we miss is the fact that real ease of heart, happiness, peace, connectedness with ourselves in our life is our natural state. It's our birthright. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, Happiness is available. Please help yourself. But we don't know how. We don't know how. And that's what's such a mystery. Because it's so available and we don't know how to recognize it. 
when we can for just a moment stop becoming so involved in our reactions to experience and just be with what is very connected to it but without wanting it to stay or wanting it to go just being with it in that moment you step off the wheel in that moment peace is available happiness is available but it's not the happiness of necessarily ecstasy or a pleasant experience. It's just the happiness of peace, of connectedness, of acceptance of things as they are. I'll give an example. The experience doesn't change our relationship to it does. Being in a traffic jam. Once, it's happened more than once, but this particular time I was on the way to the airport in Boston very early in the morning, about six in the morning, to catch an overseas flight. No, I was catching a flight to California to connect to a flight to Bangkok. So that's worse, because if you miss the connection, you really miss the overseas flight. And we were just cruising along, and in Boston, to get to the airport, you have to go through this increasingly narrow funnel of highways and six lanes down to like one lane into this tunnel. And there isn't really, once you're committed to that way, there really isn't another way to get to the airport. So we were cruising on the highway, just pulled off in the exit that starts the maze of roads into the tunnel when everything just stopped dead. You know those traffic jams where it's not even inching forward. You're just stopped, you turn off the motor, and you can't go back, you can't go out, you can't go anywhere. And we sat there for 25 minutes. And... I really watched my reactions as there wasn't much else to do. And I went through the whole gamut of, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I'm not calling this acceptance, I'm calling this pseudo-acceptance. It's fine, no problem. We'll just sit here five minutes, ten, hmm, fifteen minutes. Now it's getting a little too long. This isn't okay anymore. And the nervousness, the impatience, of what can I do? Well, there's nothing to do. The whole anxiety. This is running on the wheel. This is suffering. And finally, I said, you know what? If I miss the flight, I miss the flight. That's all that happens. It's just what it is. And the whole extra fell away. And really, for some moments, it was quite okay. I'm not saying then it falls away once and that's it, folks, we're done. No, we we keep moment by moment by moment as I practice. But really, all the suffering, the fear, the nervousness, it was just gone. And my friend and I just started to have a nice conversation. It was really quite amazing to see the difference. That's a moment, it was some moments, five or ten, and then as often happens when you stop getting so upset, the traffic started moving again. I made all the planes because they were late and it was a nice ending. But to see that in that moment, it was not like a transcendent moment of leaving my body or being in a state of bliss. We're just sitting in the car in the traffic jam. Very ordinary. And in that ordinariness, we can find a real peace of heart and happiness. This is one aspect, we could say, of freedom. I'm not saying it's the ultimate absolute nibbana, but it's an essence of taste of freedom and peace that is accessible to all of us in any particular moment of our experience. It doesn't matter what's happening. 
It could also happen in a very pleasant experience where the stepping off is to let go of our trying to hold on to it, knowing that this is really groovy, but it's going to end sometime, and that's okay too. The Buddha said once, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by me, namely liberation through non-clinging. It's not so exciting as we might be looking for. We just stop trying to control everything and be really present with things as they are. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, our capacity to wake up, to understand, and to love, what you could call our Buddha nature, is always here. So our practice, this technique of Vipassana, is not to create some alternative reality. It's to help us learn how to recognize this potential to understand and to love that's always here. And because we're so used to not recognizing it, every single moment is another chance. So, you know, the day might have seemed really long and dreary sometimes, and how many moments do I have to keep paying attention? It's great. I don't know, I should have figured out how many seconds are there in a day. Because every one of those is an opportunity to step off the wheel and recognize your capacity for peace, your capacity for love, your capacity for understanding. It doesn't matter what's happening. So when you get really disgruntled, when you're really fed up, fine. That's a moment to notice. Capacity for freedom. It's great because there's nothing that has to block this. And once said, if it's so easy, how come we don't recognize it? If it's so simple, how come we do have to sit through this long and sometimes grueling form of practice? And how does doing something as mundane as being aware of our breath, feeling the sensations of our footsteps, noticing the pain in our knee, how does that help us wake up to our potential for happiness in this way. One of the reasons we don't recognize is because what I said in the beginning, I'm just going to elaborate on it, our habits of reactivity to pleasant and unpleasant are so deep and so ingrained we don't even recognize that it's happening. So, for example, when we have a pain in the knee, we can be so involved in thinking about how it's going to be for the rest of the sitting, wondering what it means, wondering how can I fix it, I wonder if uh, she sits in a chair because she hurt her knee from sitting for too long, I didn't, I didn't, I'll tell you right now. Um, All of that, thinking I can't bear it, none of that, none of that is being mindful of the pain in the knee. None of that is actually being connected with mindfulness with the bare experience. And we don't even recognize this because we're so used to confusing our interpretation with the reality. The paradox of recognizing the potential for ease and peace in any moment is not that it's far away or somewhere else. It's that this 
Buddha nature, you could call it, this resting at ease in whatever arises, is so close that it requires an immediacy, a totality of presence, of attention, to recognize and to rest in it. And any reaction of mind either pulling away from unpleasant experience or trying to lean forward and hold on to pleasant or just zoning out and not connecting at all, any of those reactions of mind actually pull us back almost, I feel it almost physically, from the immediacy, the totality of experience and so we don't recognize and we don't even realize sometimes that we are not wholly present. So when we talk about concentration as being uh, a bringing together a unifying quality of mind and body, it's not just that it's a nice state, it's not just that it helps us focus, this unification is what lets us really rest in the present moment. It's what lets us be totally here. And so our practice becomes moment to moment, learning how to open into and accept whatever experience is arising right now. One, because that's all there is. And in learning how to be fully present with kindness, we're learning how to accept and open to to ourselves and to all of life. We're learning how to be free. This habit of pleasant, of not liking unpleasant and liking pleasant and neutral. Did you even know that there were neutral experiences? They happen a lot. We tend not to notice them at all. This habit is so deep that we don't even realize it's only a habit. And as I said before, it's very common to evaluate our experience by how pleasant it is. And if it's unpleasant, something's wrong. If you're sick, You've somehow broken the fabric of harmony in the universe. As if we're going to live our life without getting sick, ever. And I suppose we're going to die without ever being sick, too. Or somehow if we can get the perfect balance of health, we'll never die. There's some element of denial, I think, (laughs) in this attitude. But I want to talk, actually specifically about how this works, this relationship to pleasant and unpleasant, to blind us to the potential for peace. The Buddha describes it, well, I hope this is helpful, I think it's very elegant. He's asking, actually, what's the difference between an awakened person and an unawakened person? He says, an unawakened person experiences pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neutral feeling. An awakened person also experiences the same three, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. So what makes the difference between these? And he calls this, this discourse is called the two darts, or the two arrows. And he says when an unawakened person experiences, for example, an unpleasant physical feeling, pain in the knee, He worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he weeps and is distraught. 
So thus he experiences two kinds of unpleasant feelings. Unpleasant physical feeling and unpleasant mental feeling. <laughs> and he says this is like two arrows. It's as if a person were shot with an arrow and then with the beating of the breast and the worrying and lamenting, it's as if he shoots another arrow into himself or herself. And thus, instead of suffering from the pain of one arrow, suffers from the pain of two. Interesting. How often are we shooting that other arrow at ourselves? But then he goes on, and this is what I find so elegant, actually. So, an unawakened person, he says, in experiencing an unpleasant feeling, knows of no other escape from painful feeling than to look for a pleasant sensual experience. So if you have a pain in the knee, we look for some pleasant feeling. If you can't move, then we might create a pleasant mental fantasy. Something pleasant to get away from the unpleasant. And this creates an underlying tendency, which is where we fall into the deep habit in our hearts and minds, of resistance and reaction to unpleasant, and of real greed and the translation is lust, I don't know what it is in the Pali, but a real yearning, uh, holding on to the pleasant. And so then an unawakened person is caught in sort of this duality, this under, as soon as there's unpleasant, there's a resistance, and then a trying to go for the pleasant, and we're back on the hamster wheel. And he says the difference with an awakened person is they experience the painful, unpleasant sensation, bodily or mentally, and that's all. They experience it. They don't grieve and lament and beat the breast, and so there's not created the unconscious tendency then to resist unpleasant and hold on to pleasant. And so there's peace. Or as Ajahn Sumedho wrote once, one is able to witness the pleasant and the unpleasant without creating anything around it just what it is. Now granted, this might not sound really exciting, you know, but it's extremely wonderful. It's just what it is. The reaction and the interpretation is what creates and maintains our dissatisfaction with ourselves, with our experience, with our life. And without experiencing this for ourselves over and over, it's really hard to trust, to have the faith that when something arises, pleasant or unpleasant, we just really be with it. We just open to it without resistance or clinging. It's almost counterintuitive. Oh, pain in the knee, let me just open into it. It's it's not our normal reaction. But we offer it as a radical alternative to these underlying tendencies the Buddha was speaking about, to simply meet the experience of this moment, only this moment, you don't have to look beyond this moment, to simply meet this moment's experience just as it is, without judgment, without making up a big melodrama about it, simply being present with non-judging attention. This is radical. Be with things just as they are, but it's the path of freedom. I'm not saying it's easy, 
But sometimes it's our fear, our habit of not meeting experience that makes it seem as if it's impossible when we actually just knew what's happening. Oh, it's just the dark. It's just a painful sensation. That's all. The interpretation is all the suffering. An example, this is from Michael Crichton. He's a great Buddhist author. You might not have known that. <laughs> he was writing about one time when he was on a, you know, an animal safari in Africa, staying in tents uh, with, you know, with, with guys and people who knew all the bush and everything. And he was in his tent in the middle of the night with his wife. And there was a huge banging noise and brushing and rustling and he woke up just petrified. He's lying thinking, there's elephants out there. You know, the guides had said there's no way elephants were in this area. They hadn't been in the area for a long time. But he was just lying there and his wife woke up and they're both terrified and shaking and creating all these ideas in his mind. And finally, finally he's okay, I'll get up and look, you know, and he creeps to his tent and unzips it, looked out huge brown eye, it was an elephant, right outside the tent. And he thought, ah, there's an elephant. Zipped up his tent, went back into his sleeping bag and went to sleep. (laughs) And this is what he was saying about it the next day. So at first he was a little surprised that he just got so calm and went to sleep after he saw what it really was. But he, he said, later he realized we are all like this. We all can work ourselves into a hysterical panic over possibilities that we can't look at. What if I have cancer? What if my job is at risk? What if my kids are on drugs? What if I'm getting bald? What if an elephant is outside my tent? (laughs) And that hysteria always goes away the instant we are willing to hear the answer, even if the answer is what we feared all along. Yes, you have cancer. Yes, your kids are on drugs. Yes, there is an elephant outside your tent. Now the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? Subsequent emotions may not be pleasant, but the hysteria stops. Hysteria accompanies an unwillingness to look at what is really going on. It promotes an unwillingness to look. We feel we are afraid to look when actually it is not looking that makes us afraid. The minute we look, we cease being afraid. And I I love that. It doesn't mean when we look and we cease being afraid, everything's wonderful. But it means we're connected with things as they are. And in that moment, intelligent action is possible. Opening again to life, to ourselves and others is possible. Compassion is possible. This is the way of compassionate heart and freedom. It transforms our life by transforming how we relate to our life, not by necessarily changing the outer circumstances. No amount of meditation is going to stop illness. No amount of meditation is going to make everyone we know happy, is going to stop sorrow and loss and death and conflict. Nothing is going to give us constant bliss. And that's not what this meditation is about. But the meditation that we're practicing here 
gives us the tools on a moment-to-moment basis to learn how to come out of a life of blind reactivity and really drop that being afraid to look that keeps us being afraid to look and just look. And whatever we see is just what it is. And this opens us to a life of great compassion and connectedness to ourselves and others. The main tool that we're using here is the tool of mindfulness. Mindfulness combined with concentration. I'm going to mostly talk about mindfulness now. Mindfulness is a quality of attention, an energy of our focused awareness that arises on a moment-to-moment basis and that we can become familiar with and experience consciously. I just want to describe some qualities of mindfulness. Perhaps the most important, we sometimes call mindfulness bare attention. It's bringing our awareness to the actual experience of something as opposed to all our ideas about that experience. It actually makes things very simple. So, for example, when we talk about feeling the breath, and we ask, we might ask you to, can you describe what you feel when you feel the breath? And you can begin to see how difficult it can be for us to know what the bare experience is. Because we can go from the whole range of, wow, the breath is like a waterfall, and I feel it flowing down in sparkles and moving in and out. That's an image. That's a thought. Which is fine if you know it's an image or a thought, but it's not the sensations of the breath. And then we might say, okay, I feel the stomach moving against my clothes. And it's true in a a way that's what we feel, but that's also an interpretation. Because when your eyes are closed, you're not really feeling stomach or clothes. You might be feeling pressure, or scratching, and even these are words we put on the experience, or tension, or tightness. But how can you actually feel T-shirt? What does T-shirt feel like? What even does T-shirt mean when you come to the bare experience? So for now, all I can say about T-shirt is, image in my mind, that's seeing. I can feel a kind of a warmth and scratchiness. That's the experience of touching. I can look and I can see a color that I call lavender. That's seeing and also thinking. The t-shirt's just an idea. And so with the power of the practice of bare experience is to simply, the ideas aren't bad, but we bring our attention to the actual experience over and over. This begins to cut through our habits of reactivity and just be with what is. So being with the breath in that way, being with sensations in the body, later being with emotions, being with sounds. So it has this aspect of bare attention, which is the experience, the sense experience itself, feeling, hearing, tasting, touching, seeing, smelling, thinking. That's all just the sense experiences. 
including the mind of thinking. So there's the bare attention, and there's also the quality of mindfulness that is absolutely kind, non-judging, non-discriminating. So with mindfulness, with the breath, a breath starts. We don't say, well, this, I don't really like this breath too much. It's a little rough. I'll wait till the next one. (laughs) We feel the sensation, the attention's there. Non-discriminating, non-judging is just what it is. Okay, with a breath, that might be easy. But when we begin to open up to sensations in the body, we see how this discrimination slips in. Feel the breath, sensation, that's painful. A little too painful. I think I better just stay with the breath. I need to develop a little more focus before I feel that. You know, or certain kind of cramps. Maybe one time a friend was saying, well, I have these cramps in my stomach. So, well, do you feel it? Oh, I'm really familiar with them. I get them all the time. So what? They're happening right now, but often we think, well, that's familiar. I don't need to pay attention to that. Or we can easily think this is more pleasant than without even knowing it. We just slip over and pay attention to the pleasant. Or the unpleasant. We can have a bias either way. But mindfulness doesn't discriminate. It meets whatever happening in a very kind way. And I'll give an example how this really cuts through our suffering, our interpretations, our confusion we place on reality. And this is a very common experience. A yogi on retreat last year, I think it was, in Barry, retreat just like this, told me this after she'd been going through this for a few days. It's always nice when... In a way, you go through it yourself and come to the understanding from your own experience. And she said there was a repetitive noise in the hall. I think it was probably the ticking of a clock or something, but she didn't say. And she'd be sitting there, quietly being with her breath, feeling very calm, and then hear the noise, hear the noise. And she just first became annoyed, then became just filled with rage and anger. That noise is just destroying my concentration. It's ruining my practice. You know, and just having a miserable time for days until finally something, of course, we've been saying all along, but we always hear it when we can hear it. She heard one of us say, when you become aware of the experience of hearing, just be with the bare experience of hearing. So all of that, why is that noise in here and how dare they put a clock and it's ruining my meditation, my concentration is shot, None of that is the bare experience of hearing. So she said, okay, let me try it. And when the tick would come, attention right with ticking, ticking. Not even saying that, just right there with the hearing, hearing, hearing. And she said the whole suffering just died away. She became very peaceful and calm. There was just sound arising. And she said, you know what? That's, that clock wasn't bothering my concentration. My mind was disturbing my concentration. It had nothing to do with the sound. This is really how coming back over and over to just the simple experience can help us, unknown to us how it even works, can help us really come to deep insight about the nature of our experience in any moment and how suffering has created so much of it by our mind's reactions and how just a moment can cut through it all, which is really lucky for us that it only takes a moment of connection to cut through it all because we've spent an awful long time building it up.
one reason retreats can be so uncomfortable is because we're cutting through our habits of mind. And as we know, habits might be really bad for us, but they can also be really comfortable. It's really hard to break a habit, no matter how destructive it might be. And our habit of reactivity and judging pleasant and unpleasant and neutral is very deep. So when we say, please come to the sitting and just stay here till the sitting ends, part of the reason for that is because it helps you not give in to the habit. Even if the reason you stay is simply shame, you don't want everyone else to know you got up and left. And believe me, that comes up at times. That served us all at some point. <laughs> Sooner or later, you get over the shame, and there's nothing to do but come back and pay attention to whatever it is that's bugging you. And that's the moment when it's possible to see, oh, oh, that's just an unpleasant feeling. It's just an arrow. I don't have to shoot the second arrow. That's just somebody clearing their throat. It's just hearing. I don't have to construct a whole reality around that. And if we don't make it in that moment, we get another moment to try again. Tomorrow, as we begin to expand the instructions more, uh, to include physical sensations in a broader way, not just waiting for the real intense ones, but really any physical sensation, you'll see that that's a really good place to explore physical sensations, a good place to explore the quality of their attention and the difference between this non-judging, kind way of being with experience and how different it is when we flip into uh, being identified with or caught in the interpretation or the reaction. So, for example, the breath. It's been nice and soft and calm, and you sit down and all of a sudden it's tight and constricted, and you can't breathe deeper than here. How easy is it to build up a whole life history around that? It's not just tight and shallow. It's a sign of my ongoing, constricted heart my shallowness of emotions, my inability to do anything right, my inability to relate to other people, my type A personality, my great, my great ambition, my driving in consideration for other people. You know, no wonder it's torment. And we come back and there's tightness. And instead of tightness, that's all it is, tightness. Instead of tightness, we shoot about 25 arrows of everything that's ever been wrong with us. Pain in the knee, pain in the back, anything it might be. And it's interesting to watch before it gets to be a really strong, unbearable pain, because granted, it's very difficult for us to be at ease in the midst of strong and ongoing pain, whether it's physical or emotional. It's possible, but it's difficult, and it's not the best place to start learning. The place to start learning is just with the little nudgy ones. So when you feel a little nudge in your back, you say, well, I won't pay attention to that till it gets worse. You're losing a really good opportunity to practice mindful awareness, to instead of doing all the ways that we try to avoid, bring your attention gently into 
the unpleasant feeling itself. This is mindfulness. Don't even call it pain. I find as soon as I say pain, I've got a whole idea around it. This sensation, or what does it really feel like? Is it tingling? Is it burning? Is it heat? Can you just get interested in the actual experience? This affectionate curiosity brings in the kindness, brings in the undiscriminating quality of mindfulness, brings us right into the bare experience. And then you can see the difference when there's just a moment of resting at ease in that unpleasantness, and then you can feel, oh my God, but there's 42 more minutes to this sitting. I don't think I can make it. That is the second arrow, fear, projecting it into the future, tightness, aversion. Aversion or fear, in my experience, you could say that it really arises from the mistaken belief that somehow I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant or painful experience. Some way I can avoid actually being fully present for it. And in fact, if you notice how your attention behaves in that moment of, oh no, I can't stand this for 42 more minutes, your attention has actually pulled back. It's almost, I feel it actually physically. This is if pulling back from the experience of the pain so that we actually are not connecting in that moment. And thus our experience of life when there's something unpleasant becomes an experience of unconnectedness, of separation, because that's actually what we're doing. We're pulling away from the experience. Now, if that worked, if that worked, that would be okay. If substituting pleasant experience when there's something unpleasant actually worked as a strategy all the time, that would be okay. But obviously a dozen or none of us would be here. (laughs) What brings us back into peace is actually going back and connecting with the experience. An example, a little example. Sometimes when, uh, I don't know, I sleep funny or something and my neck goes out and I'll have a kind of strong headache that goes on all day and I feel from that sort of disconnected and spacey. And today's been a day like that. And I do what we often do when we think we're being mindful of something unpleasant. There's lots of ways we can kid ourselves. Like, oh yeah, headache. I acknowledge it. There's a headache. You feel it, sort of feel it. Call it a sideways glance. You know it's there. You let yourself feel it for a second and then kind of pull back and pay attention to something else more compelling. And the headache just kind of goes on and on. And we start to feel really not that present, not quite connected, not so alive. Because the problem is we can't shut down selectively. When we shut down to anything, we're shutting down globally. When I shut down to my headache, when I pull back from that, I'm pulling back from everything. I do feel disconnected, but it's not because of the headache. It's the pulling back. Just just before I came in here tonight, I was standing just right by our apartments looking out over the desert, and I saw a coyote wandering around, actually very close to this first little road that you get when you're going down in the desert. And I got 
totally engrossed in watching him so that I was completely uh, unified and connected in that. Watching him for about five minutes, he didn't seem to see me at all, just meandering around, and then he turned and started towards me and almost came up the hill, and then I saw him look up and see me, and he, he literally went, like, oh my God, what's that? And turned around and went in another direction, and just then Franz was walking in from the desert, and I said, oh, oh my God, there's another person, and he went off in that direction, and I got really happy, very connected, and then I saw right. I connected with my headache. Oh yeah, right, there's a headache here, and I've been avoiding it all day. Boom. So the coyote, the connection that I felt, has brought me back into connection with the headache, and again, I'm present. So sometimes you might connect with something else, and then that lets you come back again to the difficulty. But there's no way we can avoid it and really be open and present in our lives. So in learning to bring this mindful awareness to pain, it's just how can we soften into it the bare experience? Not bargaining, I'll pay attention if you go away in 10 minutes. I'll pay attention if I get a really good insight from this. I'll pay attention. Any bargaining has an edge of aversion. The sideways glance isn't quite there. Gritting the teeth and enduring it, the willpower, is also not the gentle strength of mindfulness. And one other relationship we can sometimes in practice get to pain, physical and emotional pain and suffering, is that we make it better than pleasant. I've often had people come and say, things are too nice. The practice is too easy. I must be doing something wrong. Whatever's happening is okay. Just as the difficult is totally fine, so is the not difficult. It's not that, you know, the more I suffer, the better I'm doing. Just as it's not the less I suffer, the better I'm doing. It's neither of those. Can we just throw those out the window and simply be with what happens without preconception, without prejudgment. That's our practice. Participatory, fully present in what's ever happening without needing to judge it. Obviously, this requires infinite patience. And patience actually arises from the wisdom of seeing things as they are. Seeing that in this world, as we open to our moment-to-moment experience, we learn to open to embrace the whole show, that there is no happiness that does not sometimes turn to sorrow, that everything in the world is in constant flux, ebb and flow, the seasons, day and night, the setting sun, the rising moon, the tides, periods of health, periods of sickness, periods of great happiness, periods of great sorrow, periods of really nice, peaceful breath, and periods of when you can't stay with more than two breaths, you know, if it meant your life. That everything's in constant change and that it's also completely out of our control. If we could really get that, that we can't make things stay the same and we can't control what's going to happen next, can you imagine how much more easy we'd be in our lives if we could just meet what happens without needing to know what it's going to be? 
So what happens with this practice is that we learn to hold both of these. And it's not easy. To be able to be with great suffering is what opens us to the joy and the beauty and deep compassion. We can't have one without the other. Sometimes it's hard to hold them both. This is from a woman named Eddie Hillis, a young woman, Dutch woman, who um, was writing this from a camp, pre-concentration camp in Holland in World War II. It is possible to suffer with dignity and without. I mean, most of us in the West don't understand the art of suffering and experience a thousand fears instead. We cease to be alive, being full of fear, bitterness, hatred, and despair. God knows it's only too easy to understand why. We have to accept death as part of life, even the most horrible of deaths. And don't we live an entire life each one of our days? I am in Poland every day on the battlefields, if that's what one can call them. I often see visions of poisonous green smoke. I am with the hungry, with the ill-treated and the dying every day. But I am also with the jasmine and with that piece of blue sky beyond my window. There is room for everything in a single life. For belief in God and for a miserable death. When I say I have come to terms with life, I don't mean I have lost hope. What I feel is not hopelessness, far from it. It's a question of living life from minute to minute and taking suffering into the bargain. And it's certainly no small bargain these days. Suffering has always been with us. Does it really matter in what form it comes? All that matters is how we bear it and how we fit it into our lives. And that's the koan for all of us. It's not that we only open to suffering, but when we can open to the difficult, that's the reason we sit with these little nudgy pains. We find that then we use our own particulars of suffering. They don't have to be grandiose. But when we can be with our own difficulties, this is what opens our heart to the vastness of wisdom and the action of compassion that lets us be fully present for the joys and sorrows of others that lets us live a really full and joyful and peaceful life, really awake and intimate in our life, but not caught in this blindness of reactivity. So that we can live a life that's really heartfelt, filled with compassion, unafraid, and we don't have to say at the end of our life, what Marlon Brando did. We don't have to say with Colette, what a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realized it sooner. (laughs) A wonderful life includes all aspects. And what we're doing in this practice, as Joko Beck says, is we're moving from a self-centered view of life and practice to a life-centered view of life and practice. We're part of life. But we're not the central focus. So can we just sit quietly for a moment?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.